You're listening to the SEI podcast series, brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. All right, I'm going to get started. Um, Still probably got a few more people coming along. But we don't want to run out of time to ask these good people some good questions, so so we'll kick off. So, um, welcome to the Sydney Environment Institute panels on the business making of climate change. Welcome to colleagues and students from across the University of Sydney, and welcome to our guests. My name is Tanya Fiedler, and I worry about a four-degree world. I'm also a mother of children who might need to survive in that world, as well as an accounting academic, and I'm chairing this series. But before we begin uh, the proceedings, I'd like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land in which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. So as we share our knowledge, teaching, learning, research and practices within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. I would also like to acknowledge the support of the Sydney Environment Institute, including its director, uh, Professor David Schlossberg, as well as Eloise Fetterplace, uh, Charlotte Owens and Liberty Lawson, all of whom have played an indispensable role in bringing the series to fruition. In particular, however, I would like to thank the tireless efforts of the Institute's Deputy Director, Michelle St. Anne, who has produced this series and supported me through multiple discussions over many months. I would also like to acknowledge my co-author, Professor Waifong Chua, with whom I've been researching the ways in which climate science is increasingly infiltrating business decision-making, as well as the generous support of the Chartered Institute of Management Accountants. So we're fortunate to have with us tonight a great panel of speakers uh, who possess really deep insights into the construction of climate models and climate data, as well as into the use of these to inform the risk assessments and decisions industry is increasingly required to make when considering the threats it faces from the physical effects of climate change. So we have Professor Andy Pittman, um, Director of the Australian Research Council Centre of Excellence for Climate Extremes, um, and who is also a member of the Steering Committee of the Earth Systems and Climate Change Hub. Um, We also have Dr. Brendan Cullen, Senior Lecturer in Grazing Systems at the University of Melbourne. Kate Simmons, a Catastrophe Analyst at Willis Towers Watson. Uh, Dr. Nick Wood, um, an Associate at the Specialist Climate and Energy Consultancy Energetics, where I used to work a while ago. Um, And also, he's also a member of the Steering Committee, um, I believe, um, of the Earth Systems and Climate Change Hub. So by working with businesses to assist them in understanding the fundamentals of climate science, climate models, and climate projections, and by determining from these the exposure to both chronic and extreme climate events to both individual assets, as well as their broader supply chain, these panelists represent the very cutting edge of the interface between climate science and business. These are the individuals who, because they possess the capabilities needed to facilitate the translation of climate science and climate data so that it can be applied to business risk, are driving the mainstreaming of climate science into business. In doing so, this panel represents part of a broader community that recognises the cost to jobs, 
growth and the economy in a three or four degree world far outweigh the costs and perhaps more importantly, the opportunities that would arise in rapid decarbonisation of our economies toward a two degree or even one and a half degree world. At our first panel, we heard that the work of this community led Mark Carney, Governor of the Bank of England, as well as Chair of the G20's Financial Stability Board, to announce the establishment of an industry-led task force on climate-related financial disclosures in December of 2015. So those of you who've come to the other two panels will have heard me explain this acronym. It's an important one and we'll probably refer to TCFD a few times this evening. So I just want to make sure everyone is aware of what it means. This task force, chaired by the American businessman Michael Bloomberg, made recommendations in 2017 that companies should include in their annual financial reports and in their financial statements information pertaining to the financial risks and opportunities they face as a consequence of the climate crisis. The nature of this information relates to the transitional risks arising from changes in policy, technology and consumer preference, the physical risks arising from chronic and acute climate and weather-related events on physical assets such as property and infrastructure, as well as the legal risks increasingly faced by investors directors of companies and public authorities when it can be shown that they have been negligent in not taking these climate risks into account. Subsequent to the release of the TCFD recommendations, speeches were made and guidance provided in Australia by the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority, the Australian Securities and Investment Commission, the Reserve Bank of Australia, the Australian Accounting Standards Board and the Auditing and Assurance Standards Board. Um, and there's also been an influential legal opinion on directors' duties uh, by Noel Huckley SC and Sebastian Hartford Davis on instruction from Sarah Barker, who appeared on our first panel. And the guidance and advice provided in these announcements is consistent and clear. Climate risk is like any other financial risk. And that's a big thing for people to get their head around. We were just discussing that a little bit earlier. Um, and it should be treated as such. Okay, so not as a sustainability issue, but as a financial risk issue. The climate crisis and the economic and financial instability it will affect on individuals, corporations, investors, markets and the global economy can, however, only be managed by markets if information that is credible, consistent and comparable is provided to markets to enable the reallocation of capital. The Business Making of Climate Change series of talks speaks to the need for this type of information and the challenges it entails. It did so in the first panel by examining the ways in which investors are taking climate change into account, but also the challenges they face when trying to take climate change seriously, in the sense that they rely on information provided to them by the entities they invest in. So then in our second panel, we spoke to some of those entities, such as QBE, AGL and Combank, to explore this last issue by extending the discussion to look at the ways in which they are going about providing this information that investors need, but also some of the problems that are emerging in the provision of that information. Now, key amongst these problems is the need to translate reference scenarios and models developed by economists, energy analysts and climate scientists into representations of business risk. That is, to understand the financial risks arising from climate change, businesses need to develop forward-looking scenarios that look at two very different types of challenge. 
The first of these relates to the challenges of transitioning to a low-carbon economy, while the second relates to the challenge of surviving in a world where warming reaches two, three, or even four degrees above pre-industrial levels. So the first is a transition challenge, and the second, a physical challenge. When considering the transition challenge, businesses use reference scenarios developed by organisations such as the International Energy Agency to try and understand what the impact to their business would be, for example, if government policy required or investors demanded a reduction in emissions arising from that business to levels consistent with three, two, or even, as per the Paris Agreement, one and a half degrees. When considering the physical challenge, businesses use climate models developed by climate scientists, such as Andy here, to understand what the impact to their business would be, for example, of a Category 4 cyclone passing over one of their assets located in northern Queensland in 2030, or of an increase in the number of days exceeding 35 degrees in southwestern Australia, etc. You get the idea. The problem with these climate models, however, is that they were not developed with business risk in mind. Rather, they were developed for the purpose of guiding decision-making by policymakers. As a consequence, all sorts of technical issues arise when you try and utilise that information provided by these models to assess the risk to business. And it's to some of these challenges that the corporates spoke to from their perspective at the second panel held here two weeks ago. Tonight, we're going to extend that discussion even further to the scientists that are working with those corporate entities to both understand as well as use and adapt the information developed by climate scientists for the assessment of physical risks. But before we commence, some housekeeping information. Okay, so I have two types of tone that you need to be aware of. One is a beep, 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 or it's, it's probably more highly pitched than that, beep, beep, something like that. Um, that tells you that something's happening in the building. You should be alert to it, but you can remain where you are. By contrast, if you hear a whoop, whoop, something along those lines, we evacuate quite rapidly and move towards the building on the opposite side. Okay. Now, the ladies' toilets and the men's toilets are both downstairs, um, and they're quite usable. Um, now, in terms of the format for the evening, I will shortly invite each of our speakers to introduce themselves and the work they are currently engaged in. We'll then hear from them as they discuss some of the issues I've already highlighted, um, and then I'll open the floor to begin for Q&A for the evening. Um, so without further ado, please welcome our panellists to this evening's discussion. <clears throat> In introducing each of the speakers, I'm going to be following a bit of a science theme, so I'm going to try and do a life cycle in terms of the ways in which climate information is used. So I'm going to start with Andy, who, with his colleagues, is responsible for generating some of this information. Um, I'll then go to Brendan, who uses this information um, that scientists such as Andy, Andy have generated to help farmers on the front line of climate impacts to better understand their exposure to those impacts, after which I'll go to Kate to discuss how insurers use that same information to consider climate impacts in the pricing of their premiums. And I'll then go to Nick, who also has used this information, continues to use this information to understand, among other things, bank exposure to credit liability. Now, the reason why I say there's a bit of a life cycle in this, and you'll, you'll, you might think to yourself, well, why, why has Nick gone after Kate? And the reason for that is because um, insurers can pull out of an area. Banks can't. Okay, once they've got loans on their books, they're, they're there for a while. Okay, 
So, um, Andy, you are director of the ARC Centre of Excellence for, for Climate Extremes, um, member of the steering committee of the Earth Systems and Climate Change Hub. So this is an interesting organisation. It's a partnership of Australia's leading Earth Systems and Climate Change Research institu Institutions. So in this series, we've been discussing why investors are concerned about the impacts of climate change on the financial system and how they are increasingly demanding from corporates disclosures around their exposure. We also heard from corporates um, who are beginning to build climate change into their strategic outlooks and that they're doing so in particular when it comes to evaluating the physical risks of climate change. But this is a complex area. Um, so could you please tell us a little bit more about the type of work that you do and if possible in under five minutes, um, tell us of some of the challenges you've experienced um, in discussions with corporates around where you've tried to explain why climate models can't be quite so easily adapted um, for analysing business risk. Thank you. Thank you, Tanya. I shall try. Um, <laughs> so I prefer to do this over 13 weeks, um, so five minutes will be interesting. So I am your card-carrying climate scientist for the evening, and you'd be surprised how often when I say that I get booed, but you're a very polite audience. Uh, I was a lead author and a review editor on the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Science Reports, so I've been interested in climate science for 30-something years. Uh, I'm also very interested in carbon, and I spend a lot of time working in the impacts of land use and land cover change on energy, water, and carbon. Um, I'm also very interested in connecting people. Uh, it turns out, who'd have ever known it, that climate science is beyond the capability of climate scientists. We need engineers and lawyers and financial experts and a whole range of other areas of expertise. So one of the reasons I'm here is I like connecting people to bring scale of intellectual capacity to the problem. So I, most of my work is involved in climate modeling and Tanya mentioned climate models. These are global, physically based laws of physics. We think Newton was right, kind of fluid dynamics, kinds of fun things to do. Yeah. I think they're fun things to do. We believe you. Critically, climate models have to break the uh, world into roughly 100 kilometer pixels, and they break the atmosphere and ocean into layers. So you end up with these three-dimensional um, volumes, each about 100 kilometers by 100 kilometers. And there's not much we can do about that until somebody makes light travel faster because the computational capacity needed to run these models is phenomenal. And typically, they take six to nine months to run on the biggest computers in the world. Um, one of the challenges I've had, which is always fun, is when a major financial organization says, our board has asked for a report on our vulnerability to climate change. Can you tell us what we're vulnerable to uh, our board meeting this next Thursday? Um, and it happens. The um, other thing about global climate models, despite being extraordinarily computationally expensive, is they don't do weather. They do climate, but they are too coarse in their detail to do the weather. And almost all the extremes that people are interested in are actually expressions of the weather. 
If you think about it, what we're all worrying about is not actually if it warms by two degrees on the global average. None of us ever feel that. We're worried about what will happen to temperatures or other things where we actually live. And that's an expression of the weather. So if you want to use climate information to look at risk, you have to get from these 100 by 100 kilometer pixels to something at the spatial detail that lets you inform yourself about risk. And that's called downscaling. And there are many ways of doing downscaling now. It's commonly done to spatial details of maybe 30 or 50 kilometers, but there are people now who are doing it down to 10 kilometers or five kilometers or even one kilometer. So you begin to try to work out what's going to happen in terms of climate at very high levels of detail. Now the problem we have with that is that is computationally cripplingly expensive. And the only way you get over that is only to simulate a decade or two. And if you only simulate a decade or two, you can't fully accommodate the risk because sometimes events occur less frequently than one in 10 or one in 20 years, but are the events that actually break the resilience of a system, destroy a settlement, um, damage the electricity grid or whatever it might be. So at the moment, we're not able to fully calculate risk associated with climate change into, for instance, financial sectors. That said, the data are available. Data from many approaches, from many different models are now available, even though they were never designed to assess financial vulnerability or financial risk. And that means in order to actually use the models, you have to delve a bit more deeply than maybe you'd like to in what the models do tell you, what they can tell you reliably, what they can tell you robustly, you need to actually get a little bit down and dirty into what the data actually are, not treat it as black boxes. And that's not trivial, that takes effort. And one of the things that frustrates me is being asked to summarize <laughs> 150 years of climate science in four minutes because it's nuanced. And you have to actually partner with, work with and collaborate with people who know actually what the data are telling you. And the good news from that, of course, is that people like me get to use our models and get to use the data we produce for useful stuff, rather than just papers in peer-reviewed journals. So there is some good news here. We are beginning to advance the science and we are beginning to close that gap from what the climate scientists think is fun to what people in groups like yours are actually excited by, interested in, and need to assess financial risk. We um, have done quite a lot of work in that area, and I can talk about that later if people are interested. And the other good news is if you're working in this area of trying to assess financial risk, um, the averages aren't that important to you. Tanya mentioned two degrees or the hope of one and a half degrees. Um, sorry, I'm usually the bad news merchant. One and a half degrees is no longer technically feasible, but two degrees is. And with two degrees comes interesting and quite profound changes in extreme events. And so far as I know, there's been very little work looking at how those extreme events will actually trigger vulnerabilities in financial systems. And that means there's some really cool work to do collaboratively between people with the sorts of expertise that you have and the more traditional climate science. And I think that's really exciting. Great. Thank you very much, Andy.
Um, I'd like to hear more about that later. Um, okay, um, Brendan. So you work with dairy, beef, cattle and sheep farmers to help them assess their exposure to the acute and chronic effects of climate change on their farming systems. Um, so could you elaborate for the audience, again in under five minutes, um, how you see the types of climate science information Andy was alluding to, um, how you use this to inform the questions that are coming from industry, so around things like what a future climate looks like, how this impacts on that industry, as well as um, evaluating the sorts of adaptation options that might be available. Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, so I'm an agricultural scientist as opposed to a climate scientist, but uh, very interested in how climate variability um, and a changing climate will impact on um, our agricultural industries and, and what we can do in order to um, adapt to that changing climate. So um, I'm a reader of climate science and I'm trying to interpret what the climate projections mean um, and think about ways that I can translate that into something that's going to be meaningful for the industry groups we work with and farmers on the ground. So mainly we've worked with dairy farmers, but we've also done a little bit of work with uh, sheep and, and beef production. Um, so temperature and rainfall um, obviously are big drivers of, of the seasonal cycles of, of uh, pasture growth and, and animal production um, in those systems. So any of those changes um, in temperature, um, Temperature is important, rainfall is probably even more important um, as we're in a, a water limited um, environment. So my work involves, um, typically we will um, look at some, some projects we've done recently is to look at particular case studies in different um, production regions around Australia. Um, so we know we have historical information around the climate and how um, that varies from year to year through um, observations. Um, we can go to the climate science and we can um, identify some of the changes which are likely for that region. So CSIRO and Bureau of Meteorology have a range of resources which provides you know, fairly detailed climate information as well as um, um, some kind of scenarios that we can base those uh, projections on. Um, and then a tool that we've used quite a lot is agricultural systems models. Um, so these are, these are um, daily time step models, so we feed them information, uh, daily climate information, minimum, maximum minimum temperatures, rainfall, um, those, those kinds of inputs, um, and those models predict. Um, they predict how much grass grows, they predict how much milk uh, uh, cow is going to produce, how much uh, beef uh, production. So, so we, can, um, we can create scenarios we can create scenarios for the future based on the changes that we would expect at a, a certain point in time and feed those into, into um, agricultural production models and then think about the outputs of that and, and what that's going to mean for the production systems. Um, so for, for a lot of what we've done in South, Southern Australia, we're looking at warmer and drier scenarios uh, primarily and to generalise what what that tends to do is, is contract the growing season. So our growing season uh, gets shorter. The autumns are a bit later, the springs um, in particular are a bit later, uh, sorry, finishing a bit earlier, and uh, that's what's predicted. It's also what's happened um, quite substantially over the last 
you know, two decades. Um, so we're already seeing uh, some, of these, some of these events take place. Um, so with contracted growing seasons, and we, we do try and look at this as a dairy, as a kind of farm business. Um, so there's a, that might be the main physical effect on the farm, but there's a whole range of knock-on things which happen. So um, if I'm not growing as much grass, then I need more feed from somewhere else or my production drops. So I have to purchase that. Um, everybody else is probably in the same boat. So they're, they're purchasing feed at the same time. So the price of feed is high. Um, or irrigation is another example. You know, if it's dry and I need more water, if I'm an irrigated farm, well, I have to purchase that, the price of that's high. So there's a whole series of kind of knock-on effects which, which kind of amplify a climate change system as you kind of look from the physical effects on the farm through to um, the business structure. So we try and look at the, the impact of climate change on that, um, the whole sort of farm business. Um, and predominantly, warmer and drier, uh, apart from a few exceptions, is generally a, a negative uh, for most of these uh, businesses. So then we need to think about what, what we can do to adapt. Um, that might be looking at summer active species, pasture species or crops, so things that are uh, better suited to warmer conditions. Um, they might be looking at wa more water use efficient options. So we think we're working with the industry to sort of plan out 20 years' time, what are the things we're going to need to have successful businesses under those conditions? Okay. Thank you very much, Brendan. Um, so, Kate, I'll go to you next. So, my understanding of the work that you do, um, and please correct me if I'm wrong, um, is that you also use climate information models to help insurers understand their exposure to insurance claims that could be made by groups such as Brendan's Farmers um, as a consequence of acute climate events, such as the flooding we saw earlier this year in um, Townsville. So, in this sense, you help insurers to price their products through the development of risk premiums. Um, could you perhaps talk to this a little and perhaps discuss the extent to which climate is being explicitly factored into such analysis and indeed can it be explicitly factored? Explicit is a good word. I'll um, <laughs> get back to that. Um, so I work at uh, Willis Towers Watson which is broadly a um, financial solutions company and the part of the business that I work in really um, helps insurers to understand and to transfer their risk. So um, I guess to start with, my job title is that I'm a catastrophe analyst. And we've already heard from uh, Andy, I suppose, that it's not the uh, average or the incremental changes that we're, we're interested in as insurers, but instead it's the catastrophes and how they're gonna change, so the extremes. So my day-to-day -day job, as uh, Tanya sort of explained, is that I develop hazard models, and, that, and those are for uh, severe weather events, such as floods, bushfires, cyclones, severe thunderstorms. We then um, sell these to insurers, which use them to calculate risk premiums or technical premiums. It's fairly straightforward. For example, for flood, which is what I work on the most, we'll give them an address and then for particular flood events, what the expected flood depth would be. For a cyclone, it would be an expected wind speed. And then from that, they'll calculate a price, which is then what your insurance policies will be based on. So to go very, very simple, if your house is expected to be totally inundated every 10 years, your flood premium would be a tenth of the value of your house every year. So that's kind of what I do. And then the explicit climate change it's 
they're not being explicitly considered in some of in some of the models that we use. These are generally based on historical data, which is looking backwards. There is some um, argument, I guess, whether we're incorporating some of the climate signal, but that's only as the climate signal is happening so far. And with the rate of change as we know it is, it's not going to be sufficient. So instead, what we need to do is we need to begin to be forward-looking, but not too forward-looking. And I'll explain what that means in um, Andy's climate models. We'll uh, model climate to time horizons like 2030. I don't think anyone in this room would want to pay for their climate risk in 2030 today. Um, your insurance policy is updated yearly and it's repriced yearly, so we need to try and calculate what your, what your risk is, including your climate change risk today, and that's, that's difficult. Beyond just the price of your own policy, we then need to consider um, our reinsurance pricing. So that's, so that's the insurance that insurance companies get. Luckily, we have uh, prudential reg regulators who give guidelines around this. So a well-known one is that each insur insurance company will need to buy enough reinsurance to cover one in 200 year losses. So the losses that they would expect to occur, to occur in every 200 years. However, as the hazard changes and as your individual policies and individual risk changes, this is going to change as well. So instead of being able to understand how probabilities and how the frequency and intensity works in a, in a way such as climate change models, we instead need to look at scenarios and take a risk-based approach. So this is generally looking at what is likely to happen based perhaps on um, climate models, but also based on what we've, what we've seen before and on expert judgment, and also what is the worst case scenario? What is going to break an insurance company? And we're already beginning to see this happen. For example, after the, um, the hurricanes, uh, him, I always got the H stands for, and then Irma and Maria, um, we saw some insolvency of insurance companies in Puerto Rico. And a non-climate change example would be after the Canterbury earthquake, um, we saw a New Zealand insurance company um, go under. So these un unknown unknowns, um, extremes that we haven't seen before, and that can be because of climate change, but it can also be because our observational record isn't particularly long, especially in somewhere like Australia. They are of real threat to, um, to insurance companies. And I think just as my closing comment, based on what um, Tanya said before about how insurance companies can move out of areas but banks can't, this is a very prevalent issue because banks, but also all other kind of financial industries have traditionally transferred their risk to insurance companies. And as I said, we look at this and we update this yearly. So, you know, are they gonna be the last to know when these hazards and these risks uh, change? Yeah, yeah, great, thank you. Okay, so Nick, um, you wear a number of hats and um, have a number of roles. Um, and as a consequence, and you've had these various roles over, over a period of time, you've been quite central to um, work some of the banks have been doing, um, for example, around assessing the exposure to credit liability in the ag agricultural sector in particular. Okay, so could you just elaborate a little bit on, on some of that work that you've been doing, um, in particular around the dairy industry, because uh, that's quite interesting, and in a sense this brings us back to um, Nick's, uh, sorry, Brendan's, discussion as well. Yeah, thank you. Um, I'm very fortunate I can basically sit here and use the work of all the people along here. 
Basically, that's what I do. So I, I, I work across a, a whole range of different um, areas, starting with the climate science. I sit on committees with CSIRO and the Bureau of Meteorology and the University of New South Wales, etc. Talking to the, I'm not a climate scientist. So I'm something far, far lesser, <laughs> far lesser. Um, but I, at least I understand enough about the climate science to know how it can be used. Um, we also deal with agricultural systems. So we've done some work with the NAB to look at basically risks to dairy. And that's a, that's a wholesale problem. That's not individual farm by farm. That is the entire sector. Um, the Dairy Australia are very, are very involved in this. In their own words, we have to de-risk dairy for climate change. And they've been very vocal about that. So, so we rely on the work that Brendan and, and other people do within that sector. And we're also increasingly starting to rely on the work that people like, like Kate, because the, the risks are kind of, as the risks become more apparent, the finance sector's got a much, much stronger ask. What's going on? What can you tell us? How do we start to, how do we start to analyze this? So I'm very lucky to be in that situation where we can be sitting in those boardrooms and we can have those conversations and we can start to quite literally combine this information, combine it put it into sort of formats that the, uh, the finance sector understand in terms of credit risk, um, you know, changes in productivity, changes in cash flow, and then basically they can go and run with it. And when they do run with it, they run with it very, very hard and very, very fast. Uh, you know, they're very smart people. It's just a case of getting the information in the right format in front of them, and then they can work it out. Now, the implications, the climate, the, the finance sector is responding to those regulatory pressures that, uh, you know, that Tanya's mentioned, the task force and disclosures, but it's a much bigger game than that. You know, disclosure is quite literally just the first thing you would do. The really big game is where are you going to operate and how are you going to operate in the, for the future? So the map of the future world, that's what the finance sector globally really wants. And it's very difficult to do, and we're only just starting to do it. The agriculture sector is a good place to start, particularly in Australia, because We've got very sophisticated climate science. We've got very sophisticated ag sciences. So we are able to start to build those risk, those future looking risk envelopes on reasonably robust data, temperature profiles, you know, um, crop responses, animal physiology responses. So it's a great place to be. And we're heavily leveraging the very, very good science that's been done already, but it's still a very long way to go to answer those really critical de-risk Australia scale questions. That's going to be one of my questions later on. So thanks, Nick. Okay, so, and you've spoken about some of the challenges um, inherent to climate models. Um, and whereas Brendan, Kate, and Nick, um, you all indicate that you're working with those models, and it's, which seems to suggest there's enough information for you to do some work. So I recently heard an interview between Sharanjit um, Padma, who was on our panel two weeks ago. Um, with Jeff Summerhays, um, executive member at APRA. And Jeff spoke about this thing called the climate data deficit. Okay, so um, I'm curious. So as the people who are working with this data or generating it, um, is there a climate data deficit or not? Um, do we have enough information or is it really just about the nature of the information? I, and I appreciate you've all been talking to this individually, but it'd be great if together you could expand on this. Go. Go um, so, climate science is one of those disciplines that that are really forging big data. So, uh, we're interested in petascale data, many petas many petabytes of data. There's not a lack of data, 
but none of that data was created with this kind of question in mind. So there is a profound gap be between what you do to understand our climate and what you do to understand risk. I tried to say when I spoke about the need for people who want to use the climate data to actually get and understand what the data are. So I think if you do that, there's not a lack of data, but you may discover that the data aren't exactly what you need. And then it's a question of a dialogue about what you do exactly need and to work on the climate scientists to try to provide that kind of data. But don't underestimate how hard that is. We don't provide precise information at household scale from now to 2030. We don't do that, not because we're lazy, but because it's not technically possible. And we need to find that, that way to bridge between what's needed and what we can provide and narrow that bridge. And that's being worked on pretty intensively, but it's not an easy problem. Um, yeah, so I, I think I agree, obviously agree with everything um, Andy's said. I, th I think it's, it's about putting this into two categories. And the first one is things that we don't know and that further research will help, and things that we don't know and will never know and can't be used as an excuse for, for inaction. So I sat in a boardroom recently and we spoke about climate change for half an hour and then at the end um, someone suggested commissioning some work to find out what the insurance premiums in Brisbane would be in 2030. Like, that's not even a climate problem, that's an economic market, there are so many other uncertainties in that. And so if we, if we wait until we have, as exactly as Annie said, the perfect data, we'll, we'll, never, we'll never really do anything. Mm. Um, I, I personally think that there is enough to definitely get started and I think that Nick will probably agree with me. <laughs> Um, and it's just, it's just about, I guess, finding the right frameworks. And in insurance, we're quite lucky because we, we have the history of working with mm. natural hazard. Mm. And it's, we've, so we understand how to deal with natural hazard to an extent. And now we just need to understand how natural hazard changes. But it's not that big a step, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> um. Andy might rather like to respond to that. <laughs> Nick, what are your thoughts? Okay, so um, a simple answer is yes. We can create um, sufficiently detailed risk analytics with a proviso that they are sufficiently forward in time. You can't come any closer than 2030. That you, just doesn't work, as Andy's pointed out. And provided you stick to system responses which are well understood. So when I talk about system responses, and I'll use agriculture again as an example, if you were to look at Australian government statistics of crop production, you get a pretty detailed data set of how certain types of crops can respond to rainfall and temperature, and he's the ag scientist, so he can explain it much better than I can. Um, and that's all workable. So you know, you can start to go, we can start to apply the climate simulations for decreased rainfall and increased temperature, which are reasonably strong signals in places like Western Australia, we can apply those to the Western Australian wheat farming belt. And we can, we can see a response in 2040 and 2050 and 2060. That's useful information if you're you know, involved in large-scale agricultural investments and lending to that sector and you run grain silos and you have very large capital infrastructure that you want to be able to you know, earn a return from in the next 50 years. That's very useful information. 
we can't go to individual houses or you know 2025 it doesn't work so we absolutely can do you know relevant contextual risk financial information in the right circumstances and australia's lucky it's got higher resolution climate data it's got good climate science and good ag science i would not like to try and do this in other locations around the world which is you just don't have the basis to do it on so my answer is a yes yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, I look, when we look at the climate science, we see things where we, we have high confidence about what's going to happen uh, 15, 20 years into the future. We look at sort of temperature projections, you look at different climate models, you see a lot of consistency um, in, in those projections. So we can use them with confidence to look forward. If we look at things like rainfall, there's going to be more variability in that. We have to accept that. There's going to be some uncertainty associated with any of, any of the projections uh, that we use. I, my philosophy is we have to utilise that uncertainty. You know, we can't pretend that we can exactly predict what the 2040 climate is going to do, but we can um, use the range of projections that, we, that, that are out there um, and explore them, what they mean, um, and, uh, and use them to inform the steps forward. Uh, so absolutely, we can do uh, things with the information that we have. Um, the farming groups that I work with are extremely interested in variability and extremes. And I guess they're at the, the harder end of what we are, we are able to predict. So if there was, um, if, if, but, from the climate science, what we are starting to see is more confidence in the projections uh, that are around them. So, you know, if we look back 10 years ago, it was kind of maybe, maybe <laughs> paraphrasing that way. But, um, but then when you see the more recent reports, you know, there's increasing confidence uh, around what those projections are, partly because some of those things are starting to be observed. Um, so, um, more information around e extremes um, and variability is um, is important, but also we don't know everything about how our agricultural systems will respond to these sorts of extremes that we haven't seen. So there's a, there's a lack of knowledge mm. in in those uh, systems responses as, as well. So talking about climate extremes and variability, um, we we have politicians in Australia who claim that. Um, there's always variability in Australia. You know, Australia was always subject to bushfires and drought, and you know, that's just part of part of the Australian fabric. Um, so, can you differentiate between natural variability and climate variability? And are you able to differentiate between that in the information that you or the the analysis that you make, or also? What are people in industry asking you about around this? Are they asking you about this? Do they understand the differences? So, yeah, go ahead. It, the answer to the first question is yes. Yes. Uh, the others might want to answer the second <laughs> question. So you can distinguish between natural and climate variability. Absolutely. Yeah. And have been able to for a long time. Um, I'm sure most of you know climate science is very old. The only doubts really around this stuff at that level are in the minds of people who've never engaged with the science. Mm, fair enough. Okay. So, what about the discussions that you guys are having with industry? Is that something that is understood? Um, so, uh, look, I think this is a big issue for um, agriculture about trying to understand, particularly what we've seen over the last two decades across southern Australia with 
you know, probably 17 out of 20 or so below average rainfall years out of the last out of the last 20. So trying to understand what uh, part of that can be attributed to um, what might be termed natural variability and what is the, the climate change signal um, that sits underneath that. And maybe Andy has an answer for me, but <laughs> I'd love to hear it. Um, and I guess part of part of what um, part of what drives this and and what the farmer groups that I am talking to are interested in is that a lot of what we've seen over the last two decades is more severe than what the climate models would have predicted in terms of of rainfall decline. Um, so the um, the the issue is um, uh, is it is it moving faster? than what, um, what we've predicted, uh, because we've seen this contraction of the growing season. When we first started looking at this back in about 2006, 2007, some of the things we might have predicted for, say, 2040, um, it probably looks like what's happened over the last decade. So um, that's, a, that's a big concern for um, the agricultural industries. Um, I think from an insurance perspective, sort of the attribution of an event, I don't want to say it doesn't matter, but the claims have to be paid regardless. So after um, the Townsville floods at the beginning of this year, there was a lot of talk about whether that was caused by climate change. And I mean, my view is that we're in a climate change environment. Every event has, you know, has, has that influence. But for, for an environment like far, far north Queensland, I and correct me if anyone's more knowledgeable than I am, it's very hard to, to um, attribute. Um, what, what the issue is going to come, not when you have one, I think Townsville was about a one in 750 year event, it's going to be when that event happens in two years' time and in four years' time and six years' time. The insurance industry can deal with extremes. We can't deal with extremes happening more than expected or you know, all, all the time. Um, so I think the way in which I explain the variability in climate change is really that it's become a lived experience for a lot of people now. Mm. So whether it's five or ten years ago, you would definitely hear that on the, on the bus. It's always changing. You don't hear that now. And the lived experiences that people have started to see in their own lives, things they'd never expect to see, you know, 40 days above 35 degrees in Moree or whatever. And those climate records are getting broken all over the world. It's not just one or two places, it's, it's happening all over the place. We're also starting to see the emergence of certain types of climatic events that just have never happened before or very, very rarely happened before. Um, Southern Hemisphere cyclones, Indian Ocean and Southern Atlantic, um, the unstable polar vortex in the North American continent in winter. Um, and there's probably quite a few others that you know a lot more about than I do. Um, and those, those become, lived, they become on, on the news and the lived experience. So you don't get the same pushback on this issue that you would have got you know, four or five years ago. Um, it's now, okay, what can you tell us? And how, 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 how bad could this be? And what do we need to do? Not, no, nah, it doesn't, doesn't, you know, I don't believe it. That, 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 that narrative's changed drastically in the last two years. Okay, so thinking about how bad could this get, um, <laughs> Um, so, uh, Nick, you mentioned this idea of de-risking agriculture. So we're de we've been talking about de-risking agriculture in a sense, de-risking insurance, de-risking the banking sector. 
Um, so what about this idea of de-risking Australia and our economy? Um, is our economy at risk? <laughs> is our economy at risk from the physical effects of climate change? Um, is this something we should be worrying about, you know, in terms of, say, economic collapse, global collapse? It's probably safer for me, for me to answer this because I'm self-employed and I'm not an government employee. <laughs> oh dear. Okay. And who's, who's, what sort of people are looking, are there people who are actually looking at this? I, I, I have a very fortunate life as I do some great work in Australia and I do some interesting work in London and occasionally I take part in midnight phone calls to New York. Um, I'm going to ask you this question. How much money does Australia borrow? Who knows the answer to that question? Shout out. How much money does Australia borrow? Tanya, you should know this. No. You can tell us. No, in total, Australian sovereign debt. What's Australian sovereign debt? Yeah, okay. It's those numbers. Yeah, it's, it's, it's 574 billion in just just federal debt and then the state debt and the other stuff as well. So yeah, it's a lot of money. Okay. Who do they borrow it from? Big overseas investors. Australia's a net importer of capital. How long do they borrow it for? So if you were to go onto the uh, Australian Federal Treasury webpage, you would see Australian you know, government bonds. They are dated out to 2047. So here's the question. If you're a global investor sitting in a boardroom in New York, and you get in front of your screen the offer to the offer to buy ten billion dollars of Queensland government debt dated to twenty forty or twenty forty five, what would you think? Those are the people who are starting to look at this problem. So when 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 you view Australia from outside and you view Australian, you know, Queensland state debt in twenty forty five, you go, Whoa, really? Am I gonna get paid that back? You know, no cows, no cola, no tourism. How's that going to work? Now, I'm kind of being making it like it's not quite nearly that simple. And it's a bit sort of, but the problem is, the point is, there is a national project that needs to be done here, de-risk Australia. Because if you don't de-risk Australia, what impact is that going to have on that AAA credit rating? And those are the questions that are being asked in those big boardrooms in New York. And I know that, I know that because I help those people ask those questions. Anyone else want to add to that? Um, so I think that de-risking in, in an insurance context means uh, moving away from particular areas. Problem is, is that Australia is already a very risky place and insurers make their money from, from, well, from investment, but also from premiums. So if the more areas that insurance companies move away from, the, they're re reducing their premium pool and reducing their ability to make money. And um, as everyone likes to talk about, uh, you know, ins insurance companies are there to make a profit. And the problem is, is that if they are insolvent, or if they can no longer do that in a way that makes a pro pro profit, then who is left? And the answer to that is the government. And so we often refer to the government as the insurer of last resort. So I, I don't think de-risking is the answer. Uh, instead, I think we need to consider resilience measures where possible, and that may be levies for flood, although it's hugely problematic in its own right, um, and proper planning controls. Mm. At the moment, we have about 
I think it's about 20% of Australian residential properties are at risk of flood, at some risk. We need to at least not build anymore, uh, which is, which you laugh at, but we just saw in Townsville new, new developments, um, one that hadn't even finished being designed, that were pretty much completely destroyed by the floods. Um, they were built, built a couple of centimetres above the one in 100 year flood, so a one in 750 year didn't, didn't go very well. And I, th and I think we need to make sure that these communities are not left alone. We don't want to have, depending on, some people call it, call it an affordability crisis or an uninsurability crisis. Um, I think affordability is more on the head because often these areas aren't that beachside property on Col in Coleroy falling into the sea. They're people in the lower socioeconomic regions um, and they're the, they're the people who are most vulnerable to being left in the lurch. And because you giggled at Tansville, um, I'll refer to the raising of the dam wall in the Sydney catchment. Yeah. If you think that's for flood mitigation, think again, that is so you can build more houses in apparent safety below the dam wall. And we're doing exactly the same as we giggle at uh, other countries. And when Prince Charles seems shocked that houses built on a floodplain flooded, we seem shocked that when we build out in Western Sydney at heights below the flood, we seem terribly shocked when those houses are deemed at risk. So it's not, that planning problem is right on our back door. And it's seriously problematic that the solution to the housing problem is to build houses in places that are at risk. And they're not just at risk from flooding. If you want one place in our area that's at a severe risk of climate change, look at Western Sydney, where it tends to be dry, hot, urban heat island effect, lower socioeconomic group um, um, wealth, and yet that's where we put the major growth centers. So it's just the same in Sydney as it might be in other places that we look at from a distance. Do you want to add anything? Yeah, I suppose from an agricultural perspective, the emerging issue now is it's about diversification and, and spreading that risk. So um, how can farmers tap into emerging markets around carbon, um, uh, emissions reductions, um, and, and spread their business risk? So a lot have got all their eggs in one basket, so to speak, um, but what are the opportunities out there um, for a, a diversification of income sources. Um, that's exactly the kind of questions farmers are asking us uh, right now. Mm. Okay. All right. Let's open up to the floor now. Um, it'd be great to hear some questions coming from, from you. Um, but uh, those who've uh, been here before will know that I do have some ground rules. Um, so firstly, I would encourage everyone, please, to um, ask questions. No question is, is too stupid. Um, uh, so my first ground rule is to ask a question, um, not to provide a lengthy comment. Um, please do feel free to make a couple of comments and quest uh, around a question, but um, if it becomes very long-winded, I will cut you off. Um, and then also, please uh, tell us who you're addressing the question to, if it's to a specific person or, um, or anyone on the panel in general. So, yes, anyone? Is there anyone who'd like... Okay, we've got a few. All right, I think you were first. Yep. Uh, g'day, this is just to the whole panel. Uh, I just wonder what your 
perception is of Australia's scientific literacy. So, and not just on the boardroom level, but uh, at a broader level. Was it scientific literacy? Literacy, yes. In, at literacy. the boardroom level? Literacy, yes. And seeing as I've got a, the microphone again, <laughs> uh, do you think that the scientific arguments that you're putting forward suffer from a lack of emotion in that the emotive side of things seems to... Lack of emotion. Yes. Okay. It's very dispassionate, which is applaudable from a scientific perspective. But anyway. Yeah. Okay. So um, I think the scientific literacy in Australia lies somewhere between Germany and the United States, and you can decide which <laughs> of those countries lies in which bookend. We, um, we're not doing badly, but we're not doing anywhere as near as well as we could. And... Um, in terms of how passionate I may or may not be. I've been doing this for 25 years. I've been saying the same things for 25 years. In 1990, I was one of the people who briefed the cabinet on how we needed to deeply cut emissions in 1990. And you can see how much effect being passionate had. So I'm now being dispassionate to see if that helps. <laughs> uh, does anyone else want to say anything about... Yeah, sorry. A very quick comment. Um, just to talk to the boardroom, I think that you just need to remember that um, in a boardroom, in, in a business, CEOs, CFOs, CROs are generalists. They're not specialists, which is what I would say scientists are. And so even if there is a reasonable amount of scientific literacy or, you know, if they're, if they're, even if they're quite technical, if they're actuaries, for example, they have to be across a lot of things. And I, I think that's why we have to be as clear as possible and also as relevant as possible. Um, I agree with that comment. Once the particular people kind of get it, they do get it and they pick it up very, very fast. Um, I mean, they're very smart people. Um, as for the emotional piece, I agree and disagree. I, I disagree in the context of the professional risk management environment of a boardroom, but it has a useful context in the background. And, you know, I have, I have slides that I use that make people cry. The ocean warming temperature, the ocean warming slide makes people cry when they realise what we're looking at. Um, thank you so much for all the panel and everything. Um, my question was for you, Brendan, uh, but all of you as well. But what can the farmers do and what, I guess, um, strategies are in place for them to not only reduce their emissions and how they're impacting on climate, but also, I guess, how the industry moves forward um, to make sure that we, I guess, look after them in that area, um, I think. And is there any particular strategies in place that you can, you can speak to? Yeah, look, we've done a lot of work looking at um, alternate systems. Um, we've done um, a lot of work looking at, at different regions as well. Um, look, there's no... I don't think there's any silver bullet out there in terms of what um, agricultural systems... Um, but farmers are already doing a lot. Um, so there's been adaptation of kind of feed base, um, moving towards... Um, drought-tolerant or heat-tolerant uh, species um, in relation to the changes that have already been seen. Um, some are active species in some regions. Um, but every kind of production system has its own set of risks, and I guess that's what we, that's what we 
kind of observed. Um, dairy industry in particular has been on this kind of long-term trend of becoming more and more intensive, so becoming more and more reliant on purchased imports, um, bigger cows, more cows, more milk production per cow, um, purchasing more feed, higher cost feed to, to, to feed them. Um, and I guess one of our, one of our um, things is, you know, that kind of system may not be well adapted to a more variable climate. Um, so farmers becoming more self-reliant, maybe backing off that kind of long-term trend of, in, of intensification. Um, but, and management skill. Management skill is, is crucial um, to any of, to being successful in any of these businesses. So, I mean, there's a range of things that are being done and there's a range of things being explored, but there isn't one kind of answer out there. Um, very interesting question, and the, the answer is very differentiated by different types of farming systems. So, you know, the dairy sector was I took a lead on this quite a while ago now, five or six years ago, and said, we just got to fix this. Let's just get on and work out how we, to do it, which is kind of why experts like Brendan and people kind of get involved. Um, you went to the other end of farming and the overstocking, forest clearing, degraded soils you get in the northern rangelands, very, very big problem. They, that, that's... You can't, you can't, you shouldn't even start where they are now. You, you, you need to start 20 years earlier and go, we need to do this differently 20 years ago. Um, it's, it's a bad problem. And how to fix that in the face of increased variability, increased drought, and all the other aspects is very difficult. There is no easy fix to it, and it's going to get worse before it gets better, I think. Um, my question uh, ties in with the last one. Um, has there been about... Um, different types of uh, crops which might be better suited to uh, changing climate conditions. Has there been any um, increase of uh, interest in the agricultural sector in uh, looking at uh, traditional Aboriginal cultivation, uh, particularly there's a growing interest um, and public awareness now with Bruce Pascoe's recent book, Dark Emu, looking at um, uh, cultivation and irrigation and so on, harvesting seeds. Uh, uh, native millet and uh, grasses and so on, which might be better adapted than the ones which have been brought in from other countries and uh, for the last 200 years and grown here? Yeah, look, there is certainly um, increased interest um, in native grasses and they're well and truly recognised um, as being more tolerant of the kinds of the so combinations of soil and climate variability uh, that we've seen and um, some research projects going on at Melbourne just starting up uh, to look at, at cultivation um, exactly as you're um, and Bruce Pascoe's involved um, in some of that in some of that work as well um, you know in the in the Victorian kind of pasture based industries there's very little native grass left. It's basically all been cleared. Um, New South Wales, um, not as much. Really, it's really difficult to reintroduce um, on a broad scale because um, there's not a lot of seed harvested and they flower at different times of year. There's so much genetic diversity um, in those populations. So there's not really a commercial seed industry around native grasses yet. There is kind of for amenity purposes, but not for kind of broad-scale agriculture. So, yes, there is a recognition um, of the value of native uh, native grasses, um, 
but how we get them back into the systems where they've been lost is is problematic. Hi, um, my name is Marina. Thank you for tonight. Um, I was just wondering if you could comment on the scientific literacy of Parliament because it feels like um, a lot of businesses really absorbing and adapting uh, in a way that is not happening in policy and in legislation. And um, uh, yeah, I'd love to hear why this is so hard. It seems like the science has been conclusive for the last decade or so. <laughs> Go on, Andy. <laughs> you can do it. <laughs> Yes, I, I was going to use the Marge Simpson defence that if you can't say anything good, don't say anything at all. Um, there are, in government departments, there are some outstanding people that have deep understanding of the issues. But we don't elect our politicians for their scientific literacy. And in fact, the black and whiteness of science, where you're right or you're wrong, kind of, really doesn't map very well into politicians and politics and the party room and that whole area in Australia. But as many of you know, Angela Merkel, I think, has a PhD in physics and Margaret Thatcher had a degree in chemistry. So there is no reason why scientists can't get more involved in parliament and in, in senior positions. And I guess those of you under 40 have excellent career options ahead of you. But... Typically, when I meet with more senior politicians, the facts that one might bring to the table tend to be inconvenient, and they will take the facts into the discussion at the same level as they would take opinions. And as a scientist, that's not a viable way to develop policy, but is in politics is an entirely legitimate way to develop policy and there is a conflict there and things like science meets parliament is one of the ways that the scientists are trying to break that down but I'm not sure how successful it is. Um, Andy and I are about the same age and we both went to <laughs> science orientated northern British universities at about the same time. Um, we can probably both remember the first keynote speech on climate change made in the UK, and it was by Margaret Thatcher. Uh, she was a chemist. She understood it. The real puzzle for us Brits over here in Australia is, is why does a Conservative government <laughs> not get it? Um, I fully agree with what Andy says. Opinion, it becomes treated like an opinion. The controversial thing I'm going to say now is that the government doesn't matter because the politicians do not matter. The big levers in the world's finance sector have seen the problem. It's not the politicians saying do it, it's the governor of the Bank of England, the governor of you know, the Central Bank of Germany, it's the G20, it's the big bankers in New York who go, we're not gonna lend you any money. Whether you believe in climate change or not, I don't, it doesn't matter. So the politicians have made themselves irrelevant and to be honest, there is no public political will to deal with it. That's the fact, so do it in a different way. Okay, thank you. Thank you for being here. I'm Leah with Coastline. First of all, 
hats off to you to saving us. Because <laughs> without food and shelter, we can't survive. The question that I have is sort of a two-part. I know that there's a lot of talk about technology and algorithms of AI assisting. Is that helping with your research? And if it is, what percentage, each one of you, would you say that that is helping you predict and how your track record has been and how close are you getting to maybe helping solve some of the problems we're looking at? <laughs> no, it's a terrific question. Um, the, the answer is in most of climate science, AI has yet to become a significant contributor, but conversations have been going on for about 18 months. In weather prediction, in weather forecasting, it's a major component of how you both do weather forecasting, how you assimilate the satellite data, and how you add value to the forecasts to give products to people that they actually want. So it is coming through, but one of the fundamental problems is the number of graduate students out there and researchers working on AI are not nearly enough to populate the sciences beyond a handful of science, sciences and a handful of businesses that need people with that expertise. Um, and the universities simply don't pay the salaries necessary to retain some of those bright kids in AI. We lost somebody recently to Switzerland on, they finished their PhD and a month later they were on a higher salary than I am um, because they had done their PhD in AI. So we actually need to bring a lot more kids through in those sorts of fields so that they uh, are a lot more available to get involved in the research, I think. so. Um, I don't use it myself, but I do know that some of my clients have started to get involved in some of the IT tech startups around climate risk. So there's two groups in particular, both in the US, uh, one called Jupiter Intelligence, uh, another one called 427. And they're both quite recent startups, and they both claim to be able to use AI. Now, Jupiter Intelligence have got ex-NASA, ex-NOAA, and ex-Google Analytics people on their staff. So that claim is probably probably real. You know, I've interviewed them over the phone. I don't quite know how they use it, but they claim to be able to start using AI for this type of problem. Right, interesting. Um, yeah, I, th I think it's um, becoming increasingly used in uh, insurance. I'm not an expert. Um, predominantly through insurtechs, so um, generally startup companies that have some clever idea and then get... Um, into big, big insurers, and I do know of at least a couple of insurers in Australia that use uh, machine learning in their pricing. Mm. Mm. Okay. Sorry. Okay. Excuse Thank me. you for an interesting presentation. Um, in relation to the native grasses thing, I used to work with landholders in, I guess, northern New South Wales, and there are actually native grasses that will um, take back, will actually um, recolonise areas quite quickly. We've seen it uh, once things are they're given a chance to do so. But my question um, relates more to, I guess, the current drought and those sorts of things. Um, in particular, looking at the monitoring systems that landholders put in place, because from what I've seen with all the work that I've done with them across some broad, pretty broad areas, that is a big problem, that they just don't have the understanding about making decisions quickly if things aren't going well. So what's actually happening in relation to that space? Um, the first comment, I'll ask, answer the first bit. And this may not 
be what you expect to hear, but as far as the climate scientists know, there is no link between climate change and drought. Now, that may not be what you read in the newspapers and sometimes hear commented, but there is no reason a priori why climate change should make the landscape more arid. And if you look at the Bureau of Meteorology data over the whole of the last 100 years, there's no trend in data. There is no drying trend. There's been a drying trend in the last 20 years, but there's been no drying trend in the last 100 years, and that's an expression of how variable the Australian rainfall climate is. There are in some regions, and there are not in other regions. So the fundamental problem we have is we don't understand what causes droughts, and much more interesting is we don't know what stops a drought. Well, we know it's rain, but we don't know what lines up to create drought-breaking rains, and that's an area of very active research. In terms of the monitoring, you might be able to... Yeah, I think um, it's a real area of kind of understanding what we might think about as, as trigger points for decisions. So having a kind of risk management framework um, in place to, to say, you know, when I get to this point in time, if I haven't got, you know, X amount of cover, these kind of decisions are going to be very context specific to a, to a farm or location um, about, you know, a, a decision to destock. Um, based on a, a certain set of criteria, but I don't think they're, you know, widely um, in place, uh, to my knowledge, as well. Um, a, a lot of things are going on, like, around risk management on farms, like, um, you know, grain trading and, and water trading, um, you know, locking in prices. Um, so people are taking advantage of, of those sorts of markets and, um, uh, and you know, smart people are, you know, locking in prices ahead of time and, you know, riding out some of those extremes and so not being so exposed to those markets. So, you know, there's a whole range of different risk management options um, on farm. Yeah, that risk management point is very important. So that's the sort of thing that the, uh, the sort of bank lending banks are starting to look at because of the very increase in variability. The ability to manage that risk is going to be a, a factor in that lending decision. So the types of, if we if I talk about the types of developments we see now. So the dairy sector have got a online app that you can get warnings of extreme heat stress events for cows in summer. It's called Kate Stone or something, but it basically gives you a real-time warning of extreme heat for the next five days. And there is work being done on things like safe livestock carrying capacity for rangelands and grass capabilities. So the risk management, the sort of on-the-farm decision management tools are being developed. And, you know, that their day will definitely come when people start to go, how good are you at managing these risks? Because we can't avoid some of these. There's also crop insurance. Is there crop insurance? Do you get involved in crop insurance? Okay. <laughs> yeah, we were having that discussion earlier. Um, okay, so I think we had a, yep. Hello, um, so my question's mainly for Brendan and uh, Nick, and I'm gonna preface it by saying my family are dairy farmers, so I have deep sympathies for the human cost of uh, variability in agricultural sectors. Um, given that a lot, uh, agriculture can be responsible for a significant amount of emissions and of uh, harm to the environment, and also there is a significant cost to the agricultural industries in Australia and across the world to, uh, of climate change, what does the face of the agricultural industry in Australia look like moving into the future? Are we always going to have beef? Do you think that dairy will continue to be 
uh, a significant industry? Um, and particularly, why, why do we think that we will uh, change and shape the way agriculture works in response to both these risks, both to the people and, of course, to climate as a result of agriculture? Mm. <laughs> Look, I mean, there's no denying that livestock industries uh, produce quite a significant amount of greenhouse gas emissions. There's, there's a lot of research around trying to mitigate those emissions, but probably we're talking about maybe 10 or oh, 20 or 30% reductions in emissions for the kind of technologies which are there or, or they're on the horizon. So I think what we do with our land, um, what production systems uh, we use, whether that's grains, which have a lot lower emissions profile than, than livestock production, that has to be part of the conversation for the future. Um, uh, having said that, there's, I mean, we can talk about moving to grains and we see grains move in to, to various regions. There's, there's other regions of the Australian continent where, you know, the, the soils and the um, the soils and the climate are just not reliable enough to support grain production. So um, what, what do we do with those um, if we're not um, raising, um, uh, raising ruminant animals on them? So um, I, I, I really recognise that that conversation has to be part of it and I think there are areas which perhaps would be better suited to crop than, than livestock production. Um. So there's, there's a lot of work going on in both on the emission profile of agriculture, but it's always secondary to just, you know, the coal-fired power stations. Um, there's also, uh, the, the, the answer to this question, well, you'll see the answer in probably mid-August, because when this big report we're working on actually comes out, the answer for dairy is reasonably good in that the technology and the locations mean that a lot of the climate impacts are adaptable too, but it's, going to take a bit of effort and quite a bit of money, but that they're, that they're adaptable to. Um, the only real, the really big issues start to arise on the marginal kind of wheat and cropping areas where essentially you're, just, you're not going to get the rainfall. And in one or two dairy areas where essentially the temperature profile just gets too much, you know, maybe, you know, Northern Riverine or whatever. But mostly it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a story that, can be dealt with, but it's going to take effort. Hi, thanks a lot for the discussion tonight. It's been really interesting. Um, I've got a question, I guess, about um, systemic or collective responses to the challenge that we've identified about adapting climate science for business. We've talked a lot tonight about a lot of the really interesting and important work that's happening in particular sectors or with particular organisations to translate the science and to make it kind of decision useful for people who are responding. I'm just wondering whether there are things that are happening or that could be happening collectively across different, different sectors or systemically to help address that problem in a kind of, in a broader way. One of the examples that springs to mind, Canada just released a big uh, task force, did a big review of sustainable finance in Canada, and one of the key recommendations in that report was for a new government-run initiative on translating climate science for the financial sector, and one of the key recommendations for that new organisation would be, just as an example, to produce two or three reference scenarios that could be widely used for TCFD 
compliant uh, disclosures. So that's just an example of the kind of things that might be interest, interesting here. I'm just wondering what your views are on whether there are any major gaps or opportunities at that kind of collective level for these kind of responses. Um, so I guess within the financial sector, I think that this is an issue that is um, bringing different financial services together, particularly uh, insurers and banks. Um, as I mentioned before, banks traditionally um, transferred their risks to insurers, and if that may not become possible, then um, that's something that they have to work together on. Um, banks and insurers both sit underneath um, the same regulator. And so you gave the example from Canada, um, but also in the UK, they've just released reference scenarios, um, the PRA. Um, generally, APRA does a lot of things about six months to a year after the PRA. So I would hope that the same will happen. Um, two developments. Firstly, there is a working group with the insurers, the banks, the regulators, and the climate scientists. I think you're actually, are you sitting on it? Maybe not. Not sure. Um, and that's called the Climate Measurement Standards Initiative, and that is designed to do reference scenarios and guidance for retail, property, and infrastructure. And that's kind of happening on the moment. Um, and then the other piece, it's quite weird, but essentially the conversation that you just related about Canada, I was in a, exactly that process last week in Melbourne. So we're designing it now. That's, it's under wraps at the moment, but that, that process is, is actually happening right now. Okay, great. Any more questions? I've got one more. Uh, I'm, I'm interested to hear what, uh, what catastrophes that are induced by climate change that most concerns the insurance industry? Um, so the uh, regulatory body that I just mentioned, APRA, released a survey recently where it surveyed uh, 38 different insurers, and that's across general insurance, life, and health. And they identified um, the biggest risk was reputational, um, but pretty much the same was flood. So flood has been traditionally considered as a secondary peril in Australia, um, but not even only for climate change reason reasons, we're beginning to see um, that flood is becoming a primary peril, which used to be only earthquake and cyclone. So those are the ones where you can expect to see these massive losses. Um, but we're beginning to see more and more that uh, when cyclones do hit, the losses are about half wind and half flood. So you not only have the um, riverine uh, flooding, but also um, from cyclone. So flood would be my answer. Anyone else? Okay. Um, all right. Well, since we haven't got any more questions, I'm just going to ask one final question. Um, so you were asked before about AI and expertise. So I was just wondering more generally. So since we're at a university, and we're meant to be building expertise here. What are the areas in general that we need to build on? So, yeah, what are, what are the skills that we're not developing now that we should be developing? Uh, so I think we're not doing too bad a job in developing a lot of the skills. So okay. as a... Are they the ones that we need, though? As a climate scientist, I just want physics, maths, computer science, physics, a bit more maths, a bit more computer science. <laughs> So maybe and, I'll pass the question on to someone and else. And we do that fairly well. <laughs> um, and so I'm pretty positive about that. Coding is really important. Okay. But all the stuff you normally hear about with educating kids in STEM is very important to us in the physical science. Yep. But then what I don't see happening in Australia are research groups, centres forming around innovative and clever use of that climate science information. Such as? 
there, there used to be a centre in Australia on impacts of climate change and health. Mm -hmm. There used to be a centre in Australia on the impacts of uh, climate change in terms of um, uh, flood and, and other hazards. Those have all died out. And I think that's, it's, it's actually pretty shocking to know there is no actual large-scale research group in Australia looking at the implications of climate change on health. Um, many groups have little elements of climate change built into them, whether it's in weed management or, or whatever, and that's great. But I think the biggest problem in Australia is the effort is, um, is spread very thin. And there's groups in CSRO, there's groups at the Bureau, there's groups at a dozen universities. In a different universities, there's expertise in other areas, and there's no way to actually coordinate them. Mm. And we do need a national strategy to make sure that the connection between the science that's done feeds through the information generated down to the people who need it, and that the information flows from the people who need information, that they can communicate it to the scientists so we generate it for them. That isn't actually done very well in Australia. And the best groups I see doing it are actually now in industry. There are groups in industry that are forming groups that do what I've just described and leaving the universities perhaps a little flat-footed. Uh, so I'd absolutely agree with Andy. We need physics, maths, coding, just quantitative and technical skills. And I, I think that we don't know what the problems are going to be. You want in. communicators as well, don't you? Sorry, what? You want, <laughs> no, you want communicators yes, yes. as well. well you I, can I, communicate. I think that um, we don't know what the problems are going to be like in 10 years. So it's about having that background in those STEM subjects. And I also think that we need more women in these fields. We very much see a lot of men going through um, this and not the same amount of women. Every person I've spoken to who works in insurance says they fell into it. So if, if they're all falling into it, then why aren't women falling into it in the same, in the same mm. right? Did you have anything to add, Andy? Um, my, so my, my daily experience is I know there is 13 odd terabytes of climate change data sitting on the national computer infrastructure in Canberra. And in order to get it, I've got to ring somebody up. <laughs> there has to be an easy way. On that note, if you'll join me, please, in thanking the panel. Thank you to all of you for your questions and for joining us for this series. Thank you.